postpartum body odor. It is a totally natural phenomenon because your body chemistry changes after giving birth. And so sometimes that means that what worked before is no longer effective. But I am excited to say that now there is a solution for that stubborn odor. The Sugar Sugar Postpartum Deodorant is a completely natural deodorant made by a postpartum mom who went through it herself. And it works by eliminating and preventing bacterial body odor without covering up your skin's comforting smell to your baby while giving you 12 hours of odor control. And let me tell you, it actually works. Here at the house, we've all been trying it and loving it. Now, before you think, ew, you're sharing a deodorant with your husband and daughter, let me explain that this full-body deodorant comes in a convenient pump applicator that lets you apply it anywhere on your body with no bacteria traveling on the deodorant, so no ew involved. We also love that the Sugar Sugar Postpartum Deodorant has a delightful natural scent of USDA certified organic extracts that smell like a pink sugar cookie with lemon frosting. I thought this would be a little strange, but it's actually amazing. Also, the Sugar Sugar Postpartum Deodorant is free from artificial fragrances and any kind of senoestrogens or herbs that can interfere with breastfeeding. Find your Sugar Sugar Postpartum Deodorant at postpartumdeodorant.com. That's postpartumdeodorant.com and use the code BIRTHFUL for 20% off through the month of May. Get your Sugar Sugar Postpartum Deodorant now at postpartumdeodorant.com and start smelling more like yourself again. Pregnancy and postpartum are some of the most nutritionally demanding times of your life, which makes sense because you're basically acting as your baby's pantry while pregnant or nursing. That's why the quality of your prenatal supplements is so vitally important. Hands down, the one I recommend is needed. So I'm thrilled to say that if you use the code BIRTHFUL at thisisneeded.com, you can get 20% off your first month of needed products. Needed is the number one nutrition brand recommended and used by me and over 4,000 practitioners from nutritionists to midwives, functional medicine doctors, and OBGYNs. Needed is for anyone trying to conceive, pregnant, postpartum, and really, this is goodness you can use even before and beyond the perinatal years. Along with prenatals, Needed offers premium supplements for every stage, from egg quality support to a lactation support plan, a stress and sleep support plan, and a gut health plan. In fact, I've had clients rave about Needed's pre and probiotic formula, saying how much better it made them feel compared to their usual probiotics. And to me, Needed's hydration support packets, which only have ingredients you can pronounce, are a must in any doula or hospital bag. Also, Needed's prenatal multi is available in capsules and easy-to-take vanilla powder for those with nausea or pill fatigue. Head over to thisisneeded.com and use the code BIRTHFUL for 20% off your first month of Needed products. That's thisisneeded.com and use the code BIRTHFUL for 20% off your first month of Needed products. Hey, Adriana here. 
I wanted to let you know that starting this week, we'll be going back to our older format of one episode per week so that we can start easing into the summer and you can have more time catching up and going through our fabulous Birthful Library. Happy listening. Welcome to the Birthful Podcast. I'm Adriana Lozada, and today we're talking about gestational diabetes. What is it? How is it diagnosed? How reliable are the tests? If you're diagnosed, what does that mean for your pregnancy, baby, and birth? Why does the generally recommended gestational diabetes diet usually make things worse? And is there a better alternative to all this? Lily Nichols has answers. Stay tuned. The Birthful Podcast. Talking to maternity pros to inform your intuition. Hello, mighty parents of parents-to-be. As always, thank you so, so much for listening and for all the love you give the show. If what you hear is helpful, then please do take a few minutes to subscribe and leave a review on Apple Podcasts or on Facebook or on Google or wherever you like to leave reviews. Um, or just even tell your friends about it. It really does help and I truly appreciate it. Since this is the last episode for 2017, which that just seems crazy, I hope that you've been having a mindful holiday season filled with many hugs and giggles. My wishes for the new year are that fertility be abundant if you're looking to have a baby, that pregnancy be uneventful, and that you have a smooth labor if you're expecting, and that if you've had a baby, the breast milk flows freely and that you have a solid network of support. I also hope that postpartum mood disorders be non-existent and that everyone, every single one of us, gets more than enough sleep in the new year. All right, today we're going to be talking about gestational diabetes, which is something that I've been wanting to do for a long, long time. And I finally found the right person to talk to at this. And I'm excited to bring it to you because several... Listeners, several of you have requested this topic. I'm thinking of you, Leah. Um, so I'm super happy to have Lily Nichols, who's a registered dietitian, nutritionist, certified diabetes educator, researcher, speaker, and author with a great passion for evidence-based prenatal nutrition and exercise. I, I'm super happy to have her here to help me tackle this somewhat complicated and controversial topic. So Lily, welcome. Great to have you here. Thank you so much for having me. Yes, I hope we will demystify as many of the the mysteries of gestational diabetes as we can today. Yeah. So let's start with a like straightforward, easy one. What is gestational gestational diabetes? Yeah, straightforward and easy. Um, sort of. Gestational diabetes is uh, it means that a woman has elevated blood sugar during pregnancy. And there's a couple ways to define it, which is why it's not always exactly super simple. Um, one is that it's a type of diabetes that develops during pregnancy. Second definition is that it's a type of diabetes that is first diagnosed during pregnancy, which can mean different things because it can mean that a woman came into pregnancy with some pre-existing blood sugar issues that only were recognized during pregnancy because of the stressors that your body goes through in carrying the baby um so that's a different <laughs> yeah and if there are can you like do one step back and explain the different types of diabetes and how this might relate to those so there's generally 
I guess I'll, I'll just categorize it this way. There's generally three types of diabetes. We have type 1 diabetes, type 2 diabetes, and then we'll say gestational diabetes. There are little subsets of some of those. Um, type 1 diabetes is a type of diabetes that is um, not lifestyle related. It's not something that people have, you know, you know, anything is, has caused it specifically, like it's not caused by eating too much sugar, for example. In type 1 diabetes, a person's pancreas stops producing insulin. So in that person, they need to take supplemental insulin to manage their blood sugar. In type 2 diabetes, this is often something that develops later in life, um, although we're actually seeing higher rates of it develop in children right now, which actually relates to gestational diabetes. So we'll talk about the link between those. Mm. But in type 2 diabetes, um, it's not necessarily caused by a lack of insulin, at least not in the early stages, is that your body is not as responsive to insulin. Your body is what they call insulin resistant. So um, you're in, in, normal, in a normal healthy state, when your blood sugar goes up, your pancreas releases insulin, which is a hormone that helps to lower your blood sugar back down. In type 2 diabetes, this process is still happening, but your body has become insulin resistant, meaning your body has to pump out much larger quantities of insulin to lower your blood sugar. Um, and at a certain point, when it's been going on for years and years, your pancreas can actually stop producing insulin. It just gets completely overworked and you have what they call beta cell failure, or the cells in the pancreas that produce insulin fail completely. And then that person needs insulin like to survive. You know, it's almost like you've gone to a type one diabetic state after so, 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 so many years. Mm. Um, usually though, you have residual insulin going on with even advanced type two diabetes. With gestational diabetes, like I said, it's either one that develops during pregnancy or is first diagnosed in pregnancy. So, there are a couple things that happen like physiologically in a pregnant woman's body that make, um, that make you more insulin resistant. So it, it mimics a type two diabetic state in some aspects. Those aspects are that, um, a, you gain weight, right? So when you gain weight, your body becomes more insulin resistant. It's just as a, a natural response to that. Um, two, you have higher levels of placental hormones and that causes insulin resistance because your body is actually um, attempting to shunt as many nutrients to the baby as possible. So the insulin resistance is so that your body doesn't become like energy hungry and store all this extra energy. You want to send it to the baby. So it actually serves a very important purpose. During pregnancy, however, your body normally can, can overcome that natural insulin resistance with higher levels of insulin. So like by the third trimester, most women have insulin levels triple what they had before they even got pregnant. In the case of gestational diabetes, you either have, you know, we have elevated blood sugar with gestational diabetes. That doesn't happen in normal pregnant women. In normal pregnant women, their blood sugar actually trends 20% lower than non-pregnant women, okay? So when the body fails to adapt to all this stuff, either the insulin resistance is too high and this is often in women who came into pregnancy unknowingly having prediabetes, or your pancreas hasn't adapted and can't produce enough 
insulin to overcome that insulin resistance or a combination of the two of those, that's when you have gestational diabetes. But all the risk factors for gestational diabetes mimic the risk factors for type 2 diabetes. So they are very much on the same spectrum. Mm. It's just when in life you identify them. So is it, because you said, you know, with the gestational diabetes, it could be one that it was kind of... There, there was some symptoms that were already present, and during pregnancy, we kind of tested for it and and recognized that. And other is that it's something that develops during pregnancy itself. With the first case, is that more indicative of once you're done being pregnant, then you are more likely to then get type two diabetes or develop that or Or is it, you know, because one of the things we hear is if you have gestational diabetes, that only happens during pregnancy. And once you're not pregnant, it goes away. Right, right. Uh, It's a complicated answer. (laughs) But yes, you're on the right track. So, yes, if you come into pregnancy already with insulin resistance and already with slightly elevated blood sugar, there's a higher chance. Well, A you're more likely to get the quote-unquote diagnosis of gestational diabetes, even if it was prediabetes that was going on beforehand. But yes, the metabolic like issues that were happening before pregnancy, those won't necessarily disappear after pregnancy. Your blood sugar will get better because you won't have the, the placental uh, insulin resistance going on, and you'll likely lose at least some of the weight that you gain during pregnancy. So usually blood sugar levels get better for the short term, but over the course of like five to 10 years among women who had gestational diabetes, there's anywhere from a 30 to 70% chance that they will, they call it convert to type two diabetes. So there is like this lifetime in the research, they call it like, it's like an early warning sign. It's the, it's the most reliable early warning sign of type 2 diabetes we have in women it is a positive diagnosis for gestational diabetes. Now, I always say, though, it's not, like, um, it's not like a fate or destiny thing that if you get a positive diagnosis for GD, you'll automatically get type 2 diabetes. It's like the warning light coming on in your car that like you just want to take your your health and your lifestyle and your the foods you eat, the way you move your body, you want to take those things a lot more seriously because you can absolutely prevent that from happening in the long term. But it's, sometimes it's like pregnancy is your first signal that there is an issue. Unfortunately, mm. there are things you can do to oh, yeah. make it better. Yeah, so that, which we'll, we'll definitely get to. Um, but before we do that, how, how common is gestational diabetes? It depends on how you diagnose it. So you'll see, uh, you'll see the, the the like prevalence rates of gestational di- diabetes anywhere from five percent to upwards of eighteen percent, and it depends on. Well, this kind of will lead into a question that you wanted to get to, which was talking about the diagnostic standards for gestational diabetes. <laughs> but it t- depends upon the screening method, and it depends upon the the cutoff points for what they consider gestational diabetes or not because like all blood sugar related issues or all the types of diabetes well I guess minus like type one that's sort of in its own its own category of severity in the types of diabetes that are related to insulin resistance I'll say that they're all on a spectrum so like your blood sugar 
is on a spectrum. So there's some gestational diabetes that's really mild. If you go with a screening method that's maybe not as sensitive to some of these mild forms of gestational diabetes, you'll be in that, like, you'll get the 5% rate. If you go with some of the markers that are a little more stringent and you're just catching a woman who maybe only has elevated fasting blood sugar, but her post-meal numbers are fine or those that'll catch a broader category of women. And that's when you get to the um, estimates of 18%. But regardless of how you define it, it is the most common complication of pregnancy by far. Right. And that's, uh, that's a little bit of what I was get, trying to get to because I, the number that I found was like one in seven women will be diagnosed with gestational diabetes, which is a it, and you a gave lot. a bigger range, but it's still a lot. It's quite a lot. So let's dig deeper into this thing about the uh, common ways of detecting gestational diabetes and how reliable they are. And I know that that's like, here's where things get controversial, right? Yes. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, most people are, are um, if you're pregnant, you are, you know about the glucola test. So. I guess yes. maybe start with that one. Go ahead, jump in. You know this yes. way better than I do. This is this is definitely the most controversial topics, but I I never shy away from the controversial stuff because that's where all the that's where all the good nuggets live. Um, so the glucola is the most common way. The glucola is a drink that's very heavy, heavily saturated with glucose, which is a type of sugar. Um, and when you drink a glucola, there are different ways to do the glucola. But in essence, you drink this sugar drink and you test your blood sugar at certain time points afterwards. Depending on <clears throat> the country you're in or the region of the country you're in or the way that your doctor practices, there are different ways to do the glucola. So sometimes they do it fasting and test your blood sugar before and after. Sometimes um, it's you don't test the fasting beforehand. Sometimes they give you a bigger amount of sugar or a smaller amount of sugar. But in essence, we're testing your blood sugar response to a large bolus of pure glucose. That is by far the most common way to, um, to diagnose it. It's also called a glucose tolerance test or a glucose challenge test. You'll see it listed that way as well. Um, it have, has its you know pros and cons, which we can go into, but I'll go into some of the other methods Another way that what, some people die. Yeah. Sorry, um, before you go into the other methods, Lily, I'm yes. going to have to take a quick break and we will be right back. And we are back talking about gestational diabetes with Lily Nichols. And so, Lily, what are the other? We talked about the glucola test. What are other ways of figuring out if you have gestational diabetes? Well, another one that I really like is called the hemoglobin A1C which is a um, blood marker of how your blood sugar has been for the past like two or three months. A caveat with A1C is that it's only helpful or accurate rather in the first trimester because hemoglobin A1C refers to how much your hemoglobin, which are on your red blood cells, have been like sugar coated, what percentage of your hemoglobin is sugar coated. Um, and because red blood cells turn over faster during pregnancy and your blood is more dilute, it's not an accurate screening method to do at the typical 24 to 28 weeks. In fact, if you don't see your A1C like go down at that point, it's actually not a good sign. So A1C is something that you can use 
in the first trimester. And um, they've shown that women who have a high A1C are more likely to um, test positive for gestational diabetes by other methods. Essentially, any A1C of 5.7 or greater is indicative of prediabetes, which by a lot of different standards for treating gestational diabetes, they, they just treat it as the same thing. If your A1C is 5.7 or higher, you have gestational diabetes, maybe it's mild, maybe it's not, you'll see as your pregnancy progresses and as you test your blood sugar. Um, but they've shown that women who have slightly higher A1C levels, um, specifically women who have an A1C of 5.9% or higher, their risk, how accurately it predicts gestational diabetes is 98.4%. Okay. It's like, wow. Very, very predictive of Um, having messed up blood sugar. So it's a good, it's a good marker. Is this just a blood test? Mm -hmm. Okay. So, so, so hemoglobin A1C is like, doesn't have to be done fasting. It can be done with your first trimester labs. Most women do blood work at their first prenatal visit. So as long as you're like, getting this blood work at or before like 13-ish weeks, uh, it's it's pretty solid data to have on your hands. Now, it doesn't mean that your blood, if you have a normal A1C, like later on in pregnancy with all the placental hormones and weight gain and all this other stuff, like your blood sugar can still go wonky. So you may want to consider another testing option for later in pregnancy. But if your A1C is like 5.1 or something in early pregnancy, it is a lot less likely that you'll have blood sugar issues later on. Whereas if you have an A1C of 5.7 or higher, so, and I, I don't want to get ahead of myself, but if this test is so reliable and it can be done early on when, you know, you could then consider eating better or doing like changing your lifestyle, which is the things that help with gestational diabetes earlier on instead of waiting to 20, 24, 28 weeks. Why isn't this done more <laughs> widespread? Like, why are we drinking that yeah. disgusting sugary drink? <laughs> I know, you know, it, a, a, it's not, it's not perfect. Cause there are women who maybe have, maybe they're, we're not testing insulin levels with it, right? We're just testing average blood sugar. So some women may have normal average blood sugar, but they're like highly insulin resistant and their pancreas is pumping out like huge quantities of insulin even before they got pregnant. And then they will run into blood sugar problems later in pregnancy. So like those women might not be caught by it, but those are fewer than the number of women that we could have saved from having high blood sugar for like, you know, another two thirds of their pregnancy that would go unchecked. So, um, it's tricky. Like I've had clients with like pretty, pretty like obvious elevated blood sugar who had like a normal A1C in their first trimester. So it's not perfect, but it is a really good screening method. And a lot of times they, they'll recommend it for women who have any of the classic risk factors for gestational diabetes, like a family history of um, gestational prediabetes or type 2 diabetes, if they were overweight at conception, if they're from an ethnicity that has uh, higher rates of type 2 diabetes, which, by the way, is essentially other than Caucasian. So, like, 
everyone, <laughs> or if they have a previous history of having a, a larger than average size baby, then those women are like, you know, really good candidates for it. But yeah, I don't see what the argument is against using A1C because it's like very inexpensive. It's just a check in the box in your prenatal labs. And at least you have like some information about where your blood sugar is at rather than waiting to 24 to 28 weeks, right? Yeah, so. and and we haven't talked about this, but a great part of the why it's so the glucose is so controversial is because it's not a very accurate screening. Can we talk a little bit more about the downfalls of the glucola? Yes. So the downfalls of the glucola are a the diagnostic criteria are not standardized, so you'll find different doctors using different diagnostic criteria and this just gets down to arguments among the, the statistics and the costs of managing diabetes in the research field. Um, every country outside of the U.S. and the World Health Organization recommends a different screening method, a different glucola than what's done in the United States, which is more reliable and more accurate. Um, rather than here in the States, they do two two glucolas, as you have probably heard. You have like a screening test and then the big one. And the World Health Organization and most places outside of the U.S. just do a one test that's done fasting and it's more accurate and more reliable. Problem is that it diagnoses more women. And so the argument against it is increased healthcare costs, which is mind boggling to me because we can actually reduce healthcare costs a lot by just helping women with their lifestyle stuff to stay healthier during pregnancy and have healthier babies who don't need to go to the NICU and then won't go on to develop type 2 diabetes later in their life. But I digress. One of the issues is the, the, the diagnostic criteria based on the glucola. The other issue is that, well, I'll mention one thing that a lot of, why a lot of women don't want to take it is that it has, you know, food dyes or preservatives, or it's just like a huge quantity of sugar that they don't want to drink, which are all, in my opinion, very like valid reasons to not want to do the test. And specifically with the amount of sugar that's in there, um, if you are a person who does not regularly consume large quantities of sugar or even large quantities of carbohydrates, so maybe you follow a low-carb diet or a paleo-style diet or a ketogenic diet or something like that, um, or you just don't eat like grains or don't eat large quantities of fruits, you might have an abnormal response to the glucola, not because your blood sugar is messed up, but because your pancreas isn't adapted to produce huge quantities, release huge quantities of insulin at one time, because you're not feeding yourself with pure sugar on the regular. Um, so that is, that's definitely an issue for people who, who eat um, lower carb. You can get false positives. Mm -hmm. You can also get false negatives for women who eat large quantities of sugar or large quantities of carbohydrates. And when you're consuming sugar in its pure form, so in these women, they produce like massive amounts of insulin, which isn't necessarily like a good thing in, in the long term. But th if you consume pure sugar without any other fat or protein in it, like they will produce like a very large, um, bolus of insulin right at once. So you actually might see like normal blood sugar in women who should be diagnosed. These, this is fewer than I think the, the 
positive, like false positive diagnoses from women eating low carb. But I have seen this in practice where you'll see somebody who like passes the glucola. This is often a woman who's like maybe a little heavier or has gained a little bit of extra weight during pregnancy or has other signs that indicate maybe there's a blood sugar issue, like um, like higher blood pressure or swelling or the baby's growing larger than normal. But they're like, well, she passed the glucola, so it's fine. And then she has like a large baby who ends up having issues. And then it turns out like, well, you end up with questions about maybe there was gestational diabetes that wasn't diagnosed. I have seen like normal glucolas in women who have blood sugar issues. If you give them a blood sugar meter and have them go home and test their blood sugar, they are consistently pretty elevated. Um, so that happens too. So it's just not a perfect test. I don't mm. think there is a perfect test out there, but, um, most women don't want to take it anyways. So yeah. well, it's and, nice to offer alternatives. And it's really important for us to be talking about this because this is it, there's universal screening for gestational diabetes. Everybody gets screened. And so it's important to realize that the tests are not perfect and to, you know, understand what it's about, which is why why I wanted to have you on the show. So yeah. that you can have a conversation with your care provider and get more in-depth information about why they want to do the test and, and what works better. What, like, what does it make sense for you and your diet? Like, are you yeah. usually somebody who will not eat 28 jelly beans or 10 <laughs> sticks of Twizzlers, which is what I found out is the equivalent of how much sugar or glucose there is in the, um, in the, in the screening. Yeah. Can I talk about that for yes, a minute please. actually? Because this is a really interesting thing and I'm, I'm going to be going into this. I'm working on my second book and I'm going into the testing methods for gestational diabetes. So like this whole jelly bean test or drinking juice or doing a test meal. So in that jelly bean test, first of all, the jelly bean test, I'm talking about the specific study that showed the jelly bean test was equivalent to the glucola. A, it was only used for the 50 gram test. So in the two-step glucola screening method, just to confuse everybody. <laughs> in a lot of the US, people do a two-step glucola where they give you a 50 gram glucola. And if you, they test your blood sugar one hour after, and if it's high, then you go on to a three hour test, which has a hundred grams of glucose. Talk about miserable. Anyways, when they did the jelly bean test, they were only suggesting it as a replacement for the screening test because they recognized that the digestion of um, and absorption of sugars from like a solid is a lot different than from a liquid, first of all. Second of all, they actually sent the specific brand of jelly beans to a lab to have it analyzed for the amount of simple sugars in it to ensure that it was equivalent to a 50 gram glucola. You would think that you could just look on the label and grab anything that's 50 grams of sugar. I'll just do 50 grams of sugar from juice or I'll do 50 grams of sugar from jelly beans. This actually had 72 grams of total carbohydrates for the amount of jelly beans that gave you 50 grams of simple sugars. So, Unless you can get the exact brand that they did in the study, you're probably going to be screwing up the, the serving size. <laughs> the same thing with the juice issue. Um, with juice, again, the serving size, like what gives you 50 grams of simple sugars, that's a little bit unclear. And also fruit has a combination of sugars. It's not just glucose. It has fructose and, and other types of sugars that have a different effect on your blood sugar. So that's 
also unreliable. Like if you're just going to do, if you're going to do the glucola, if you're going to be consuming lots of sugar anyways, just do the regular glucola. And for women who ever eat things like, and I'm not judging, I'm just saying just like in real life, what you eat, do you ever have juice? Do you ever have smoothies? Do you add sugar to your coffee? Do you eat bread regularly? Do you have rice or potatoes like more than once a day? And you're like, you know, not limiting your portions to like a teeny, teeny, tiny amount. Like if you fall into that category, and this is not bad, this is like the vast majority of women, you, your blood sugar response to 50 grams of glucose should actually be like pretty decent on a glucola. Like if you're regularly consuming 150 grams of carbs or more a day, we should expect a pretty normal response on a glucola if your body is like tolerating that normal tolerating that well Mm. um and if you don't fall into that category and you eat lower carb then that's when you want to make the choice like are you going to take the test and get a a risk of false positive or do you want to carb load before the test for like a week prior so that your insulin response will sort of normalize to a high carb diet and thus you'll have a a more reliable response to the glucola or do you want to choose a different screening method like monitor your blood sugar at home instead eating your usual foods and and testing out a a few high carb meals as well like we don't have perfect answers on all of these things but I think it's like a really important conversation to be had because it's just not being had in most instances well, and, and, and also because there are consequences to whether you test positive or negative and, you know, right. whether it's false or not, there would be that will put you in a category where different care will be provided and different things yeah. will be suggested and your life will be more stressed. So we're going to take another quick break. But when we come back, I want to talk about that. Like what what is why is it important to detect it? And what does it mean if you are gestational diabetic? We'll be right back. Diaper rash. It can be a truly uncomfortable experience for a baby. And so I find that one of the biggest conundrums when diapering is figuring out what diaper cream to use. So many options are thick and goopy, making them hard to apply and hard to wipe off. But I can personally say that this is not the case for Dr. Mom Butt Balm. Dr. Mom Butt Balm is a pediatrician-approved skin protectant that is free from dyes, preservatives, and zinc oxide, designed as a breathable formula to help maintain an optimal skin barrier while allowing the healing to occur. This butt balm was developed by a mom who is also a doctor, hence the name Dr. Mom Butt Balm, when she couldn't find any traditional products that worked for her baby's persistent diaper rash and she wasn't about to settle. So she created Dr. Mom Butt Balm to go on smooth and be easy to remove while also being gentle on your baby's delicate skin. With Dr. Mom Butt Balm, you can say goodbye to excessive wiping to clean your little one's already chafed skin. Dr. Mom Butt Balm is so soft and goes on so smooth that you'll only need a small amount instead of having to layer on a thick goop. Plus, it has a lovely minty scent. Learn more about Dr. Mom Butt Balm at drmombuttbalm.com. That's drmombuttbalm.com or look for it at amazon.com. 
Today's episode is sponsored by Acorns, and sometimes I find that investing gets put off because it doesn't seem urgent or because with our busy lives, we may not have the time to research and manage said investments, which is why I so appreciate that Acorns makes it easy to start automatically saving and investing for your future and that you don't need a lot of money or expertise to invest with Acorns. In fact, you can get started with just your spare change. So for example, I take advantage of Acorn's roundup feature where they round up the purchase amounts I make in my linked account to the nearest dollar, and then they automatically transfer that to my invest account portfolio. Also, Acorns can recommend an expert build portfolio that fits you and your money goals, then automatically invests your money for you. For me, that's easy peasy investing. Head to acorns.com slash birthful or download the Acorns app to start saving and investing for your future today. Client testimonial may not be representative of all clients. Tier 1 compensation provided. Compensation provides an incentive to positively promote Acorns. View important disclosures at acorns.com slash birthful. Investing involves risk, including loss of principal. Please consider your objectives, risk tolerance, and Acorns fees before investing. Acorns Advisors LLC Acorns is an SEC-registered investment advisor. Brokerage services are provided to clients of Acorns by Acorn Securities LLC. Member FINRA SIPC. For more information, visit acorns.com. And we're back talking about gestational diabetes. So, okay. None of these tests are, I, I, I will generalize, these tests are not very reliable. We don't have a perfect. Um, if in ideally, in a utopia, what do you think would be the best way to set this up for to actually properly screen people and then be able to get a more adequate, a more reliable answer or diagnosis? In a utopia. Yeah. In a utopia, um, we would have screening with A1C in the first trimester for everyone. You're already giving blood and you don't have to do anything prior to this test. So get an A1C because if that in itself is diagnostic, then all that means for you is that you manage your, you check and monitor your blood sugar during your pregnancy and you can change what you eat. You can change the way you live your life. In some cases, medications are needed to bring blood sugar down, but you want to, you want to have your blood sugar normal, if at all possible, because we have, just to do a little aside, we have research showing that elevated blood sugar even below the diagnostic threshold for gestational diabetes is linked to a higher risk of congenital heart defects and a higher risk for neural tube defects. So these are below the diagnostic criteria. So like the goal for every pregnant woman should be normal blood sugar, okay? And if the normal blood sugar isn't happening, that's when you wanna do something and we only know if we test in some way, right? So doing an A1C would be a really excellent just baseline screening for everybody early on. The right test for later on like to see if the weight gain and placental hormones have pushed you into a more like diabetic zone with your blood sugars, that's, that's trickier. Again, in a utopia where everybody is super highly motivated to, to, you know, take control of their health, I would actually suggest that women have a blood sugar meter 
given to them and they test their blood sugar at home for several weeks. You do that in the morning, you do that after meals, you test out some higher carb meals as well. So you can figure out like what your individual like carb tolerance is. Like some women can have totally normal blood sugars eating, you know, 60 grams of carbs at a meal. And then other women can only get away with like 10 or 15. And like knowing that difference, which is essentially what women who get a positive diagnosis of gestational diabetes, like they learn that. And then you can be proactive and do something about it and have completely normal pregnancy outcomes, normal weight baby, you know, no higher risk of all these, all these issues associated with um, infants of diabetic mothers typically. Like we can be proactive. So that would probably be my favorite thing, but there's a lot of, you know, argument against doing the home blood sugar monitoring. Like you can, you can try to cheat the test, like your diet impacts your results. So some women in, in an effort to avoid a diagnosis may just go super low carb for the period that they're testing their blood sugar at home and then revert to eating, you know, if they get normal blood sugars and like pass, then, oh, I'm good. I don't have gestational diabetes. So now I can have like just not ice cream healthy for food. breakfast yeah I mean we <laughs> see that I mean I've even seen that with friends of mine we're like oh I passed my gestational diabetes test you want to go out for ice cream and I'm like well it's not exactly like the answer <laughs> <laughs> but you know it's good to it's good to sort of test your your boundaries with home blood sugar monitoring I think that's the goal and to not try to you know fake it um you also need to be motivated, like checking your blood sugar four times a day for several weeks is cumbersome. It takes planning. It's annoying to set alarms, to carry testing supplies, to track what you're eating, to poke your fingers. Test strips can be expensive. So, you know, in an ideal world, this would all be covered by insurance. And sometimes it is, sometimes it isn't. And then the final issue is that we would probably find a lot more women in that in-between zone of like not having, you know, frank gestational diabetes, but having sort of this in-between, like some numbers are good, some numbers are bad. And the diagnostic criteria between, you know, home blood sugar monitoring and what is or isn't gestational diabetes is kind of poorly defined. So again, this comes down to, you know, this is the type of, this is the type of screening method for a woman who's really um, self-motivated, mm-hmm. right? And I think for for a lot of pregnant women, like that is them. But I can tell you since I've worked in, I worked in like a, a prenatal clinic in a not very well to do area of Los Angeles. And sometimes that just isn't the case. Um, yeah, there, there isn't as much care and attention to all of these little things. And some women just also want to sort of know, I want to know that there's a, you know, diagnostic standard, like yes or no right? Um, Is it a problem? Is it not a problem? I think the other issue is that, you know, we, I I agree with you on that, like, you, you don't want to get a false positive, because your, your pregnancy can get overly medicalized, and your birth can get overly medicalized, which I'm really strongly against. And I think if we had more providers who sort of understood that gestational diabetes is on a spectrum, Um, and that not every infant of a mother who has quote unquote gestational diabetes is going to be like the textbook 
like 12 pound baby with shoulder dystocia and breathing issues. You know what I mean? Like that doesn't happen to the vast majority of women who get their blood sugar under control. It doesn't. You just have normal outcomes if you get the blood sugar down to normal. And so if we're not being proactive and not checking and not giving information to women to like get them better information to take care of themselves or get the medical care they need to take better care of themselves, then, then what's the point? <laughs> you know right. what I mean? Um, but there's, you know, there's so many things. I was just speaking at a midwifery conference on like blood sugar and carbohydrates and pregnancy and all sorts of stuff. And there was a lot of really, really good questions, um, coming up and, you know, some women are, 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 unable to be seen by a midwife if they get a diagnosis of gestational diabetes. Well, what if this woman's version of gestational diabetes is like her blood sugar is maybe like five points elevated after a meal that's too high in carbs? Does she, is she really like in the same category as a woman whose blood sugar is like 50 points elevated and most certainly requires like high dose insulin or medication to manage her sugar? Or is that even the same category as somebody who has that high blood sugar response, but with the help of insulin medication has perfectly normal blood sugars? Like they're all different. Like these are all different clinical cases. And I am really frustrated that like the state of, you know, medical practice in a lot of places means that they're all treated equally and like, you know, bullied into all sorts of interventions that they don't necessarily need or aren't necessarily warranted based on what their individual clinical presentation is. So in my experience, I've seen a lot of women have, you know, be able to maintain normal blood sugar and have, you know, normal, healthy pregnancies and, and a physiologic birth, if that's what they desire, even though there was a label, you know, of GD. So I just think we need more nuance and more mm. discussion on this. And it is so important to to explain those differences and that just because you do get a label of gestational diabetes, that that doesn't mean that you automatically are going to be on insulin and that you can have to have an induction and or a cesarean right. or high risk because your baby's going to be so big and all these right. things. So can we talk a little bit about... You know, if you do get a label or diagnosis of gestational diabetes, how does that affect your pregnancy? How does it affect labor and birth? How does it affect, you know, your baby's health? All the things. Yes. Well, like I said, um, you know, in women who maintain normal blood sugar control, they're at no higher risk of the typical complications associated with gestational diabetes than a pregnant woman without the label. So you can like drastically change the outcomes in your experience of pregnancy and birth with proactive lifestyle choices. And that's really what I'm, what I'm all about, even though I get all fired up about the diagnostic standards and all that stuff. Like I'm really about what, what's the, what's the actionable steps that you can take given the information that you have. And, and instead of, you know, take it from like, freak out moment, sky is falling moment. Oh my God, I'm diagnosed and this is horrible. And like ruined everything and, uh, to like, okay, this is, this is what I can do to, to manage this. First of all, we know that a lower glycemic index diet, meaning one that is lower in like processed refined carbohydrates and sugars lowers the chances that a woman will require insulin by 50%. 
which is huge. (laughs) Okay. So food is the number one thing that, that you can use to your advantage. Um, personally, um, you know, I recommend a lower carb diet for managing gestational diabetes because, you know, one way to define gestational diabetes is carbohydrate intolerance, meaning your body cannot tolerate large amounts of carbohydrates without having high blood sugars. So we don't want to give a woman with carbohydrate intolerance lots of carbohydrates. It's just common sense. It's the easiest way to bring blood sugar down. However, um, I, that is the you know so traditionally when a woman yes. gets diagnosed with gestational like the gestational diabetes diet that they go on is yes. traditionally super high on carbohydrates yeah okay so you've seen these these sample diets yes 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 yeah. eat bread I in know. every meal like what i know right so- i know it i know it makes no sense so yeah that's actually the whole reason I wrote my book, Real Food for Gestational Diabetes, was like a, an, an alternative to the nonsense of giving a woman like 45 to 60 to maybe 75 grams of carbohydrates at a meal when this woman, if she's following the, the U.S. criteria for diagnosing gestational diabetes, so she has taken a 50-gram glucose test and failed that, meaning her blood sugar was high after consuming 50 grams of glucose. Okay, you have this diagnosis, let's give you about 50 grams of carbohydrates, which convert into glucose into your body, and your blood sugar should be fine. Like, what? It makes no sense. It absolutely makes no sense. Well, Um, and then then the thing is, it's... (laughs) They're putting all this effort. They're getting the stress from the diagnosis. They're, you know, following this diet and it's not helping normalize their blood sugar levels, which is the goal. We've established that. And so then they have to move into more rigorous things like insulin, Insulin. taking insulin and then the end have the stressors of seeing that their work is not paying off feeling like they're failing and does that also include increase the likelihood of say because i want to touch upon this likelihood of having a bigger baby yeah like does that actually like once you've gone that and down that path and aren't normalizing your blood sugars why does that increase the chances of having a bigger size baby yes let me first go back to I what know, you there said. Was so they much feel in there. like they're failing. <laughs> yeah. I know. There's a lot to talk about. Um, the feeling like they're failing. Yeah, that was my biggest thing when I was first in clinical practice because I did try following the guidelines. I had worked on the guidelines in public policy and then put them into play clinically and they didn't work. And a lot of my clients' blood sugars got worse when they were on this diet. And for me, somebody who had already been eating sort of a real food, lower carb diet, I was like, well, this doesn't make much sense like yeah they quote they call it failed the diet failed diet therapy I was like they didn't fail the diet the diet failed them this is ridiculous but there's a lot of there's a lot of pushback to going lower carb um which we can go into but I have a whole chapter on my book on why all the all the controversy around surrounding going low carb and um potentially having some ketones in your urine is just silly nonsense but um yeah these women are are put through the ringer with, you know, following this very strict diet 
it is strict, even though it's high carb, it's strict and having their blood sugar get worse. It's just, it's just awful. And we know we can do better. We can know, we know we can lower the blood sugar by going lower carbs. So the majority of women that I see are able to avoid at least mealtime medication or insulin with diet changes, sometimes fasting blood sugar, which is usually an indication that there is a slight prediabetes going on of, of varying severity, but there's probably some prediabetes going on, which can um, cause the fasting blood sugar to be elevated. That one's trickier. And sometimes that responds to lifestyle stuff and sometimes it doesn't. So sometimes a low dose of insulin or medication helps to like normalize the overnight and early morning blood sugar. And that's great. We see lower risks of having a big baby and um, the baby having high insulin levels and um, some other complications just from um, keeping that fasting blood sugar um, under control as well. But um, to touch upon the second part of your question, which is why do babies of women with, I'm going to say uncontrolled gestational diabetes tend to have larger babies? So the what's going on in the body is when you're pregnant, your blood sugar is, your baby's blood sugar levels are like a, a direct reflection of a mother's blood sugar levels. A mother's insulin does not cross the placenta, but the blood sugar does. So once your baby gets to a certain stage in pregnancy where their pancreas is now functioning and starts releasing its own insulin, if a mother's blood sugar is high, the baby's blood sugar is high, and then the baby's pancreas will release enough insulin to keep its blood sugar under control. Blood sugar at a certain threshold is a teratogen. It's something that causes birth defects. So like there are so many mechanisms going on both in mama and baby to try to keep blood sugar low. Remember I said like in, in pregnancies not affected by gestational diabetes, blood sugar levels average 20% lower. In fact, a lot of times when women check their blood sugar at home, if they're doing like a screening, they'll be like, my blood sugar is too low. And like, I need to eat more carbs. I'm like, no, 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 your blood sugar is normal. If your blood sugar is 80, like you're good, my friend. That is actually what we observe in normal women. So anyways, blood sugar is high, baby's insulin gets high, and insulin's job is to, to lower the blood sugar, and it does that by storing extra sugar in the body by converting it into fat. So these babies grow large because they have been exposed to high blood sugar levels and their insulin, in essence, is working, and it's storing all that extra energy as fat. So you can actually see, you know, I used to work for a gestational diabetes OBGYN, and in we do like late pregnancy ultrasounds if there is any indication that something might be off. And in women whose blood sugar wasn't well controlled, you could actually see in the ultrasound like a really thick abdominal fat pad, um, which is a re response to the a sign of the high insulin levels in the baby. You can also see high um, C-peptide levels, um, which is related to the insulin levels in the cord blood um, at delivery if women didn't have well-managed blood sugar. And then those babies are more likely, so A, they grow larger, but then they're also more likely to go hypoglycemic or have low blood sugar at birth because you cut the cord and you cut the sugar supply, but the baby's insulin is still responding as if it's it's adapted to a high sugar load, right? So the baby keeps pumping out insulin when the, the sugar cord has been cut and then they can go hypoglycemic. Where in 
normal pregnancies, or I should say pregnancies not affected by um, high blood sugar, like that does not happen. They have regulatory things going on in their body and their insulin levels are usually fairly low and they're actually in, in like fat burning mode at birth. So it's very interesting. And then in these same infants, we'll see a higher rate of type two diabetes and obesity as they're older because their pancreas has been programmed during pregnancy in that way. So we see a sixfold higher risk of type two diabetes by the time these kids turn 13 compared to women who had normal blood sugar in pregnancy. And that to me is an enormous uh, motivator. (laughs) Enormous motivator. Yes, absolutely. Both things like, you know, the big baby, I I, sometimes I know the research isn't like there's no it doesn't guarantee that if you have gestational diabetes, you're going to have a super big baby. Um, Right. And there's also other like there's there's like the big baby conversation is like so awful. I was actually a big baby. I always like throw that out there. Like I was a big home birth baby. Okay. So I was like a nine pound baby. Everything went just fine. I was fine. I was healthy, but like I was, I was bigger. Yeah. Um, I have seen 10 and a half pound babies be born without mom's tearing. Yes. Like like, there's that whole part of it too, that well, and then you can have a big baby and not be an issue. Right. Totally. Yeah. And there's, there's some, you know, in some ways, sometimes the high blood sugar specifically can cause a bit of disproportionate growth, especially in the shoulders. The shoulders can be bigger um, with, with these larger babies that are related to gestational diabetes stuff. So sometimes that'll happen. But yeah, not all big babies are necessarily unhealthy and not all unhealthy babies are necessarily big and not all big babies necessarily require a bunch of interventions. So, you know, it's like uh, they are uh, the whole birth thing. Evidence-based birth has a really good um, article looking at the research on like, I love that stuff. article. I, re- I, so I will put it on the show notes and I will link it on the show notes. I often send people that way because, yeah. because it's so important to look at the evidence and not yeah. just fall into, you know, sometimes it's scare tactics. Sometimes it's being overly cautious sometimes, yes. but it can really affect a mom's outlook. And we know that stress is not helpful. It's not. Yes, exactly. It's not conducive for a healthy pregnancy. Totally. And that's why I'm like, I I really want to put more women sort of in the driver's seat of, of this whole gestational diabetes, blood sugar conversation, because if you're feeling out of control or you're feeling helpless or like you can't do anything, that's like the most disempowering, horrible place to be in. And you're right, there's like a ton of research on stress in pregnancy too. So like give yourself another thing to be stressed out about. Like stress is not good for you while you're pregnant, right? <laughs> it's just it's crazy. So how what do you how do you prevent? Let's get to the everybody's like, what do we do now? So how can you prevent gestational yeah. diabetes? Um and even and, and and I know that this is related to if if you are diagnosed with gestational diabetes, like what do you do? Let me tackle Prevent, the yeah. preventing first, and then catch me back for what to do. So, avoiding gestational diabetes is like this is like the million dollar question. Um, like I said sometimes the gestational diabetes thing is out of your control. Sometimes it really is a matter of your pancreas has not adapted well enough to pregnancy to 
produce the high amounts of insulin needed to overcome the insulin resistance. Or maybe your placental hormone-related insulin resistance is just like astronomically higher than normal. Okay, That could definitely be the case. There's also the case where there's some prediabetes stuff going on. So I try not to have women dwell on the why for too long and focus more on the on the like what you can do but if there were you know risk factors in your family for diabetes if there's maybe undiagnosed prediabetes um, if you're an older mom since that increases your insulin resistance or you were heavier when you started your pregnancy the statistics just show that gd is more common it just it just is so um some of the things however that have been shown to lower the risk of gestational diabetes are um, A, eating enough protein. This is a really interesting one that I don't see commonly discussed, but like I said, the pancreas produces more insulin later in pregnancy, and so it needs to adapt in order to do that. And they found that first trimester protein intake might help with that. So. If you can, I know everyone's like nauseous at that time, right? If you can, <laughs> try to get some protein in. Are we um, talking about like 70 grams, 100 grams, something in the spectrum? So yeah, something in that spectrum. In early pregnancy, it's actually interesting. I'm going to um, go into that topic in my second book because the RDA or the recommended daily allowance for protein in pregnancy is actually kind of kind of bunk. They've shown that it's actually higher. But nonetheless, it falls into like around 80-ish grams for an average weight woman in the first trimester and upwards of like closer to 100 or higher than 100 later in pregnancy. But pregnancy protein needs are definitely higher than pre-pregnancy um, and is higher than the current recommendations. So I would use 70 as like your, your lowest um, ballpark. Mm-hmm. The... Next thing is to watch your intake of carbohydrates, especially refined carbohydrates, because they've shown that women who eat more cereal, cookies, and pastries have higher rates of gestational diabetes. Interestingly, um, lower rates have been found in women who regularly eat nuts. Nuts are like very high in fat, protein, and fiber, which don't raise your blood sugar, so it's very interesting. They've also shown um, excessive fruit intake is linked to a higher risk of gestational diabetes um, and higher sugar intake just in general. These foods, these high carbohydrate foods, since they stimulate your whole insulin system, they also tend to be associated with more weight gain during pregnancy and either starting your pregnancy at a higher weight or gaining a lot of weight during pregnancy is also linked to a higher rate of gestational diabetes. So some of this kind of comes... um, comes full circle. Another thing is um, exercise. So there is one study that looked at women's exercise habits um, pre-pregnancy and during pregnancy and the rates of gestational diabetes. And women who exercised regularly pre-pregnancy and they measured up through 20 weeks. And it was not like that much. It was like two or three days a week for like 30 to 60 minutes. It wasn't like a ridiculous quantity of exercise their chances of having gestational diabetes were 78% lower, like a lot. Like exercise reduces your insulin resistance very, very well. One of the most common um, drugs used for lowering blood sugar called metformin 
in a lot of ways mimics the effects of exercise on your body. So exercise is good. Um, and then both magnesium and vitamin D can, can play a role in, um, blood sugar management, but also may help prevent gestational diabetes. Mm, fantastic. Fantastic. The second part of your question, I think was. So what is, so the second part was what is the healthiest way to manage gestational diabetes? And I think, you know, how does that piggyback on this and how is it different? Um, And and, and we're like, Ooh, our time's running out. So I don't want to rush you, but. (laughs) But I'll be quick. Yeah. Actually, a lot of that piggybacks on the preventative stuff. Like I said, there's no like perfect way to prevent, but there's definitely ways to manage because some of this stuff is like, oh yeah, pre-pregnancy weight gain. Like we can't rewind the clock and go back like six, eight, ten months, two years, five years back and like change things, right? So we kind of just have to like meet you where you're at. Um, but a lot of this stuff applies. So like magnesium and vitamin D still help with blood sugar regulation when you're pregnant. So like vitamin D supplements are helpful. Vitamin D supplements have been shown to lower blood sugar in pregnancy. Um, magnesium is helpful, like Epsom salts baths and stuff like that. As long as you're, you're not like overcooking yourself, (laughs) keep the water at a comfortable temperature. Um, that's helpful. The biggest thing though is, is food. So a lower carbohydrate intake is the number one thing that you'll see like reliable reductions in your blood sugar. So um, I detail, you know, a lower carbohydrate way of eating in in my book, Real Food for Gestational Diabetes. But like, for example, starting your breakfast with something like eggs and sauteed veggies or an omelet and like, I don't know, some breakfast sausage or something like that. um, That is lower carb and is going to be you'll see better blood sugar numbers from that than something like cereal or a bagel or toast or a fruit smoothie. Um, So just looking at, you know, in total where your carbohydrates are coming in from your diet. Absolutely. The the first two things that need to be reduced significantly is the refined carbs and sugars. So that's like anything made with white flour, like the bread, pastas, like cereals, cakes, cookies, and that whole stuff. Um, those items are by far like they just don't offer much in terms of nutrition. They're almost pure carbohydrate. They just raise your blood sugar and don't give you really any nourishment. So aware of those and then put more of your focus on the foods that don't raise your blood sugar, which I make a big point to to make people aware of is that some people feel afraid that, oh, I can't eat anything because I have gestational diabetes. I'm like, wait, 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 actually, there's a lot of foods that don't raise your blood sugar. So like all your, your vegetables, like pretty much most of them, except the really starchy ones, like potatoes and sweet potatoes, you know, those don't raise your blood sugar. Meat doesn't raise your blood sugar, fish and seafood, you know, eggs and, um, a lot of different types of dairy products. Some dairy has carbs, milk and regular yogurt has carbs, but like cheese and, Plain Greek yogurt is pretty low carb, butter is low carb, nuts and seeds, coconut, almonds, like there's all sorts of things, avocados, like that are delicious and very low carb and they barely leave a blip on your, your blood sugar readings. Mm, and plus, then, okay. yeah, well, and then I was just going to say in those same foods, it's like not just the carbs, but you also get more micronutrients that naturally help with your blood sugar regulation. 
like the magnesium we were talking about and a, and a lot of other vitamins and minerals that are important in there. So it's like food is sort of a, a double whammy. Like, yeah, we focus on the carbs, but by focusing on the carbs, you get a higher micronutrient intake, which also helps your blood sugar. Yeah. And it's going to help you write them and it's going to help you down. It's going to like, these are the building blocks for your baby. So it's going to help your baby. You're giving your baby more micronutrients too. And then you're also modeling like this will help change your lifestyle so that it's not just eating better during pregnancy, but you'll eat better as you move forward, have better blood sugar, and then model that yes. for your kids so that yes. you're, so there's so many so incredible benefits to doing this, not just to like, just to, to manage your gestational diabetes. Exactly. Yeah, that's kind of what I try to make clear. I know everybody just wants to focus on, on like what's going on now, and I'm all for that. I'm also for focusing on like what's the long-term benefit for this like you most women are pretty highly motivated to eat well during pregnancy like you know that what you eat affects your baby's development so this is about the most motivated you'll ever be like for me as a dietitian and diabetes educator like working with pregnant women is like the easiest group of people to work with I'm not working with like the 55 year old man with type 2 diabetes who's like stuck in his way and and is gonna eat fast food eight times a week because that's what he does and I don't want to come and see you. Like the women that I work with are like super motivated. You know, this is like a really good time to just get used to all these different flavors, even like the vegetables and spices and stuff that you're exposed to, like that changes the flavor of your amniotic fluid, which changes your baby's taste preferences when they're older. Like it's Mm -hmm. just crazy. Like you can prevent, help prevent picky eating in your kiddo because you're eating well now. And then that's gonna affect how you eat postpartum. It's gonna affect how you feed your family. It's just, there. there's huge carryover you know, um, benefits to all this. Yeah, so if you get a gestational diabetes diagnosis, don't be, don't be discouraged, but turn it into a positive, eat better, and you know, lessen the stress. And if people want to get a hold of your book, Real Food for Gestational Diabetes, and read more, or just connect with you, Lily, how can they do that? Yeah, the best place to get more information on gestational diabetes specific specifically is my um, website for that, which is Real Food for GD. GD is in gestationaldiabetes.com. Um, that's where you can find the book. I have a free training on managing your blood sugar. It kind of just gives you the basics, like where your blood sugar should be, what kinds of foods are the best for you, why you, maybe you want to try a real food approach versus the conventional high carb approach. And then I also have a course for um, women who want to really delve deeper into managing gestational diabetes with real food. I have like advanced training on managing high fasting blood sugar, which as I said, is sometimes kind of tricky and also community of other women who have this diagnosis and are managing it in this way, because especially for women who want to like keep their pregnancy and birth as like least medicalized as possible, it's like helpful to be surrounded by a group of women who are also on board with that. Sometimes the gestational diabetes support group threads are really like scare tactic, like C-section after Mm. induction, after C-section, after induction, after, yeah. So um, sometimes it's good to have that positive uh, influence. Absolutely. The The positive gestational diabetes stories. It's like when we do positive birth stories. <laughs> exactly. Yay. You know, interestingly, in my course, we have yet to have a woman who's had a large baby. 
Like we have not had, this is just, we've had, you know, Mm. 60 plus women go through it and we have not had a single large baby yet. Yeah. So it's very interesting. I, when I was in still in clinical practice working with an OBGYN, we had very, very low rates of macrosomia. So I think we're seeing the, you know, carryover effect of good food. Yeah. The other place to find me is, um, my blog, which is PilatesNutritionist.com. So there's a bunch of articles on there. Um, there's one called nine, gestational diabetes myths, which is really helpful. And then I have a two-part series on what I did when I was pregnant and how I took the glucola and then failed. <laughs> but which is, we're not going to tell them about it. This is, yeah, yeah. It, no, it, stop right there. We're not going to like spoil it. People have to go and read it because it's really yeah, funny. Yeah. It was just, I loved it. Lily, thank you so, so, so much for You're being so here today. It was, it's, I, we could talk for hours. We could. Yeah, it was my pleasure. Thank you. Mighty Ones, I love to hear from you. So share with me your thoughts. And if there's a certain topic you'd like to know more about, let me know. Go to birthful.com where you can learn more about me, the show, Patreon member benefits, send me messages and more. I'm also on Facebook or Twitter as at birthful. So come say hi. This episode was produced by me and made possible by you. The title song for this podcast is Vive Ace by Kevin McLeod, and the sponsorship song is Air Hockey Saloon by Chris Zabriskie. Find them both at freemusicarchive.org. I'm Adriana Lozada. Please join me next week when I'll be talking to another maternity pro to inform your intuition here at the Birthful Podcast. Thanks so much for listening. Hey, Adriana here. I wanted to let you know that starting this week, we'll be going back to our older format of one episode per week so that we can start easing into the summer and you can have more time catching up and going through our fabulous birthful library. Happy listening.